Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You'll also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released new bonus episodes on Knock at the Cabin and Ant-Man Quantumania. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash Show. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Keith Phipps. And Tasha Robinson. Genevieve Kosky is out training for a tune-up bout against Elliot Kalin of the Flophouse podcast, but she'll be back after that first round TKO. In the meantime, we're thrilled to welcome back our former Dissolve colleague and Sylvester Stallone scholar, Matt Singer. Matt! Hello! Hello! This is the very first time I have said hello to you. We have had no technical difficulties whatsoever. But it's great to talk to you all again. It's really good to see you again, but it's especially good to see you with that mic setup, which has a wire running right across your upper lip. So mm. most of the time, it looks like you've got a hugely comical mustache. You're right. I didn't notice that. <laughs> I would try to change it, but it's on the like the one side, and it's like a pain in the to even get it we, to sit here so i'm just not i'm not going to mess with anything listeners are YouTube. really missing out on us doing a podcast yeah. rather than a twitch stream right now yeah we have to give this yeah. on youtube or something it's like, it's like, yeah. podcasts a famously visual media yes. <laughs> well, more podcasts to listen to are like you can also watch this on youtube my thought is why would i want to do that but at the same time if the people want it we're go we're coming to youtube I, I, can we announce it right here we're coming to youtube right I, right people might want it people, people could appreciate my hot doug's shirt that i just happened to wear okay. Oh, very right, nice. Yeah, very does. Chicago. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm I'm not going YouTube, Keith. Uh, if people could see <laughs> the hilarious hats and uh, like fake mustaches that I personally prefer to wear for podcasts, they would lose all respect for me as a film critic. All right. Fair enough. So we've all been writing and talking about films professionally for a while. So many times it happens too fast. You change your passion for glory. My advice is this. Don't lose your grip on the dreams of the past. You must fight just to keep them alive. Scott, that is profound, but I feel like I might have heard this somewhere before. I don't know what you're talking about. I just get in the zone when I write these podcast scripts. You, you might say I've got the eye of the tiger. Now that I've definitely heard before. Ridiculous. Tasha, what have we got this week? We've got shenanigans is what, uh, is oh, what we've Oh, I know. Got. Shenanigans are back, but I you couldn't help it. You it up <laughs> real hard in here, and I'm just going to hum uh, eye of the tiger to myself while I'm reading this uh, next piece of text. For the next set of episodes, we're doing Thrice Twice, covering the second sequel in two connected franchises. In the new Creed 3, directed by its star, Michael B. Jordan, boxing champ Adonis Donnie Creed tries to settle into a retirement of wealth and family stability. But he's lured back into the ring by an old friend and boxing prodigy, played by Jonathan Majors, who leaves a long prison stint, eager to pick up where he left off. The trappings of wealth and fame have also softened up Rocky Balboa in Sylvester Stallone's 1982 film Rocky III, leaving him vulnerable to a hungry new fighter, played by Mr. T, who is ready to make the Italian stallion one of the fools he pities. 
Both films are about boxers who are feeling disconnected from their roots and need to humble themselves in order to find glory again. So this week, we'll talk about Rocky III and the series and the characters' evolution from their much more humble roots. Then we'll bring in Creed III, which grapples with the champion's tormented soul without the intervention of Hulk Hogan. More after the break. The worst thing happened to you that could happen to any fighter. You got civilized. Get out of here with you! The truth is we both started out on the same corner and I got lucky with my life and it's driving you nuts. Philadelphia salutes its favorite son, Rocky Balboa. Why don't you tell all these nice folks why you've been ducking me? This guy is a wrecking machine. You know, you've got a big mouth. Why don't you come out and close it, Balboa? Come on. I, I want to fight this guy. You fight him without me. Balboa was a fine champion, but his time has passed. See that look in their eyes, Rock? Got to get that look back, Rock. I the tiger, come on. There's a sequence early in Rocky III where Rocky Balboa, the heavyweight champion played by Sylvester Stallone, gets in the ring for an exhibition match with Thunderlips, a professional wrestler played by Hulk Hogan. Thunderlips is announced as seven feet tall, weighing in at 390 pounds, much taller and heavier than the real Hulk Hogan, but the contrast with the diminutive Stallone makes it seem plausible enough. Rocky goes in expecting a silly exhibition match for charity, but Thunderlips makes it clear that he's fighting for wrestling's reputation, calling himself, quote, the ultimate male versus the ultimate meatball. It isn't long before he's picking poor Rocky up over his head and tossing him out of the ring. The question that must be going through Rocky's head at that moment is also the question that might be going through our heads, too. How did we get here? How did a drama about a down-and-out palooka from Philly who takes the champ to the final bell lead to the vulgar spectacle of that same fighter getting embarrassed by a barbaric Goliath in tight shorts? With all that fame and fortune, Rocky had somehow lost his way, and the succession of easy title defenses since defeating Apollo Creed has caused him to shed his underdog status. He would need to rediscover his humility to get back to that place again, and so too would Rocky III. And yet seen from another angle, is Rocky III really that big a departure from Rocky? Rocky won Best Picture in 1977, topping a murderer's row of contenders that included All the President's Men, Bound for Glory, Network, and Taxi Driver, which is the movie equivalent of an unknown beating Apollo Creed. Rocky III was in no danger of winning anything, though Survivor was nominated for Best Original Song for Eye to the Tiger, though it lost to Up Where We Belong, by the way, uh, from An Officer and a Gentleman. But the working-class humility of Rocky Balboa and the people in his inner circle cover up the fact that Rocky is still an inspirational sports fantasy, staked on the possibility that a slow, unseasoned southpaw who trains in meat lockers could, by sheer force of will, stand a chance against a bigger, faster world champion. It is not much more outrageous for Rocky to get slung around the ring by a professional wrestler than to nearly defeat Apollo Creed. The pleasure of Rocky III is that it leans into that fundamental pulpiness while the character is trying to find his old self again. As Rocky preens his way through weak opponents and endorsement spots, Mr. T's character, Clubber Lang, snuffs out a fraud and waits for him in the weeds. Now, Clubber is the one doing all the hard training and pounding opponents for a bit of the title. When he gets his shot, it only takes him two rounds to wipe our hero out. 
as well as Rocky's manager, Mickey, played by Burgess Meredith, whose weak heart finally gives out in the locker room. In comes Rocky's old rival, Apollo, played by Carl Weathers, with an offer to train him for a rematch. He needs to find the Eye of the Tiger again. From there, Rocky's training regimen becomes a hybrid of Apollo's techniques and his own try-hard ethos. He learns about speed and footwork, which leads to some wonderful montage footage of him and Apollo racing on the beach in midriffs and high socks. To everyone's surprise, his first move as the rematch against Clubber starts is to charge into the corner and assert himself immediately. And yet at the same time, Rocky returns to his version of the rope-a-dope strategy famously deployed by Muhammad Ali against George Foreman in the Rumble in the Jungle. Ali's method was to bait Foreman into exhausting himself in the early rounds by dodging punches and tying the stronger fighter up. Rocky's method is to exhaust his opponents by allowing them to punch him in the face repeatedly. Taking punishment is his primary gift as a fighter, with counterpunching a distant second. I don't want to lose what I've got, he tells his wife Adrian, played by Talia Shire. That's the fear at the center of Rocky III, and a reason why Rocky is so vulnerable at the beginning. He came from nothing, and now he has everything. That can make an athlete complacent, but it also makes him cautious. Rocky III is about getting Rocky to find his old self and the franchise to follow in kind. On the one hand, you can never go home again, and no one will confuse this cartoonish second sequel with the film that won Best Picture. On the other hand, home is a lot more absurd than we remember. We'll talk more about it after the break. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. You know why you can? Don't get a sucker no statue. Give him guts. I told you I wasn't going away. You got your shot. Now give me mine. Why should you get the hell out of there? Shut up, old man. I ain't going nowhere. And why don't you tell all these nice folks why you've been ducking me? Politics, man. This country wants to keep me down. Keep everybody weak. They don't want a man like me to have the title because I'm not a puppet like that fool up there. You know, you've got a big mouth, you know? Why don't you come out and close it, bad boy? Come on. Come on. You're tired, dog. This guy's crazy. Don't listen to him. The little man don't want to come to me. Then I'll come to you people and lay out the truth. I am ranked number one. One! That means I'm the best. But this bomb is taking the easy matches. Fight another bomb. I'm telling you and everybody here, I'll fight him anywhere, anytime, for nothing. So, Matt, when we were thinking about guests for this episode, there wasn't much to discuss. You were our only choice. You have called Rocky Three the best of the Rocky sequels. Uh, why do you believe that is? Well, first of all, let me say, I do think it's the best of the sequels. It's not the best Rocky movie, right? Like, Rocky is the best Rocky movie. I just want to lay that out there, first of all, lest there be any confusion about that. But yeah, I, I think that it's the best of the sequels. Yes, I do. I do believe that. I think I have said that before. But I, I, I think it, it's the best because it finds a way to sort of take the original formula of that Rocky uh, movie but and sort of go at it from a different perspective. Like part of why the original Rocky resonates so strongly is 
you know, while it's a movie about a boxer, this this guy who dreams of proving he's a contender, he could have he could have been somebody and all that jazz. It's loaded with Sylvester Stallone's own, let's call it his personal mishigas that uh, he was kind of struggling with at that point in his life and his career as an actor. You know, the whole movie is like a plea from this guy saying, someone give me a shot. Someone let me prove how good I am. And then in the movie, Rocky gets a chance to prove it against Apollo. And then and I, I would, unless you, I guess, I suppose unless you hate Rocky, I mean, Stallone proved it as well. And so the thing that I like about Rocky Three is that it is sort of a personal story, only it's about the Sylvester Stallone of 1982 rather than the Sylvester Stallone of 1975 or 1976, who was a very different guy. Like the Stallone of 1982 is one of the biggest celebrities and uh, movie stars in the world at that time. And in Rocky Three, that's kind of who Rocky Balboa is. You know, like you have this big blockbuster with this pop soundtrack and exciting boxing scenes. But it's also at times uh, uh, this weirdly confessional movie about this guy talking about his fears about getting older and getting complacent and losing all these things that he's got. And I that's what I've always found interesting about it. It's like on top of the superficial pleasures of, you know, the boxing matches, the training montages, the workout fashions of the early 1980s, which are truly incredible. Like, you do have these moments where all of a sudden, like, it seems like Rocky kind of fades away and the real Sylvester Stallone is talking to you. And that's the stuff that I, I always find very interesting in it. Yeah, Matt, I was really struck this time watching it. And this is a movie I actually didn't really see until for the first time until fairly recently. But rewatching it this time, the meta touches, because I'm pretty sure the Rocky pinball machine that Pauly smashes up is just an Iraqi pinball machine that was actually in circulation at the time. Uh, it feels like some of the the, the merch was just Rocky uh, merchandise. And I believe it, that is the statue that is still in Philadelphia, right? It's, it's the same statue. Well, that's a little more complicated because that the statue was created for the movie. So, and then St- Stallone, as is my under- understanding, just like didn't want to get rid of it or just like sort of wanted it to be there to commemorate himself and, and Rocky for all eternity. And there's been, it's been sort of fought over and they put it in different places. I think at one point it was in front of the Philadelphia Spectrum, but uh, it wasn't a case of Philadelphia being like, we must honor Rocky. It was more the other <laughs> way around of Stallone going, I must honor myself and here now you can honor me as well. That said, the the pinball machine is, yes, a real Rocky pinball machine. The Newsweek cover in the movie is Stallone's Newsweek cover, and they just changed it to say Rocky Balboa. That's Stallone on The Muppet Show. That's Stallone with Gerald Ford and Bob Hope that they just kind of, they cropped out William Holden, the poor guy. I don't really know why they did that, but they gave uh, William Holden the boot from the original picture. But like all that montage in the beginning, yeah, that's mostly real stuff real things that are happening to the real sylvester stallone what about the maserati ad i looked that up i i think that one was fake maybe he just want hey if i put you in my movie maybe you give me a maserati i don't know what do you think maybe we could do that <laughs> i i mean it just sounds like uh stallone really had a lot of hustle going on during this this era in general whether it was initially as an, an unproven screenwriter or as you know, a, a well-proven screenwriter, actor, director. The the man that makes sure that Philly keeps his stature around and makes sure he gets a free Maserati out of the deal. Like, 
you know, that's that's some hustle. I like that. That's uh, that's that underdog spirit coming out. There has to have been a tipping point, though, where Philadelphia was just like, no, actually, we do really like the statue and want to keep it. We do really, really want to honor Rocky. You know, but th- there's some point in there. He uh, he had to have reached a tipping point where his fame was such that, you know, tourists were showing up to see that statue more than they were showing up to see like whatever thing it was planted in front of at the time. Liberty Bell, but they'd see what they wanted to see that before the Liberty Bell. <laughs> they just they just stuck it next to the Liberty Bell. So it looks like he's cheering himself on after punching it and cracking it. That's right. You can see in Creed 2, too. So it's, it's, isn't this like the last one that shows up in the Rocky films either? Maybe it's in some of the other sequels, too. I'm not, I'm not remembering. And it is. They Basically, they kept putting it where it is in this movie at the top of the stairs. They kept bringing it back and putting it there. But it was in real life. It was not there. Maybe it was there briefly. Right now, it's sort of like it's at the museum, but it's not at the top of the steps. It's off to the side somewhere, which is, I think, where they showed it in Creed Two. I think that was. Mm-hmm. Um, but but in the in the Rocky movies, you know, it's at the top of the steps in the middle of the plaza, like overlooking the city, like right where he did that very famous shot in the original movie, which is itself kind of meta too, because it's famous because it's in the movie. But within the cut of the world of the movie itself, no one saw him run up the stairs except for for himself. You know, it's, it's, anyway, it's, it, it is this is a postmodern work of art. Is what is what I'm saying exactly. At the same time, like I, it's been it's been ages since I was in Philadelphia. But when I was last there, it was at the top of the stairs, and I remember seeing like it was a tourist thing to come up there and do the run up the stairs, and then you know jump around with your fists in the air at the top, possibly with somebody filming you at the time, but possibly just for yourself. It was just it was like uh, people going and having their pictures taken on the Joker stairs, doing the Joker pose. It was just one of those things. I'm going to do the thing that he did in the movie at the place that he did in the movie. People uh, seem to be really into Maybe people fall, falling down the exorcist tanks <laughs> <laughs> and, and just vomiting, just tumbling, tumbling, tumbling to their death. People just love stairs in movies. That's their favorite parts of movies are the stairs. It's what I go to the cinema for. Releasing carriages, <laughs> baby carriages, just pushing them down the, the hill. Oh, this feels like it's getting off track and I'm, I'm hosting them doing a horrible job. <laughs> Tasha, what did you think of the film Rocky three? Uh, I mean, I I find it fascinating. I have about that statue. Let's talk about no. Go ahead, Tasha. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I have no particular love for uh, sports ball movies, for underdog sports ball movies, or for uh, men wailing on each other. And yet, this movie is just so fascinating. And part of why it's fascinating is that kind of of element of feeling that you're seeing Stallone kind of (laughs) get the studio to pay for his therapy session while it's getting him a free Maserati. So many of the the costumes that he wears as a a you know famous rich man about town in this movie look like he deliberately asked the costume designer to tighten up the 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 neck hole on the shirt by about three notches. Like he always looks like he was sort of stuffed uncomfortably into these suits, and that he's keeping his back really rigid. Uh, so he he looks like he's trying to pretend he's comfortable in the suit, but he's not. And I don't know if that's something I'm just projecting on him or or it is a very deliberate thing, but he just so rarely looks comfortable in what are very obviously at times like very expensive, like well, well-tailored suits for his very specific physique. And the feeling of, you know, seeing a, a working class guy 
making it good in a monkey suit that he doesn't love, but that he feels is necessary for for the persona that he's taking on at the place where he is, just kind of runs throughout the whole movie and just gives it a, a flavor that a lot of sports movies really don't have for me. The boxing sequences in this are just uh, kind of kind of breathless and horrifying. They they look bruisingly real. Uh, that whole sequence with Hulk Hogan feels much less fake than an awful lot of wrestling sequences do. There's, there's an awful lot of men grabbing other men by the head and the crotch and throwing them around. Uh, it's just it's really something to watch. But I feel like what I came away with most this time around was just a sort of feeling of thinking about all of the action action movies and action men movies I saw in the 80s and what they told me about what masculinity is like and what what men are like and what action is like and how different this movie feels. Because this is a movie that tells you it's okay for an, a, a big manly dude who can floor somebody else with a single punch to feel sheepish uh, when he's confronted with, you know, unpleasant relatives, to cry when he loses somebody that he loves, to feel to feel fear and to talk about his emotions with somebody that he cares about. And yeah, you know, all of that stuff and and to love his son and, and get goofy when playing with him. There's just all of these signifiers in this movie about, you know, macho isn't being a, a big emotionless rock. And one of the things that's so funny about that is that he has played those characters so often. The guy that is has buried all of his feelings so deeply that he can only express them through violence. Or maybe the guy who's just completely run out of emotions and is just a violence machine. And watching him here play this incredibly sensitive soul who is also, you know, as terrifying in the ring as the other top people of the world is just a real contrast to me that feels like a, a sophisticated character portrait that movies really moved away from uh, in terms of action men for a very long time and are only just, you know, finding their way back in the last decade or two. That's a really interesting thought about it. I, I, I wouldn't have considered it that way, but but I think you're right. I mean, but one of the things I, th- though, one of the elements of that, though, in this movie is the fact that he's gone soft. You know what I mean? Like, that's part of having money, having, uh, being on magazine covers, having a, a Maserati, whatever it is that he has now it is taking him away from who he actually is. It is taking him away, away from the old, from the old Rocky, as Matt put it in his Stallone piece. There's a, the old, he's the new Rocky, and the new Rocky is not somebody who can compete like the old Rocky, because the old Rocky was the guy from the streets, you know, who used to pound against slabs of meat at a meat locker. I mean, that's Rocky. So the movie is about finding that journey and about hardening himself again, because not only being rich, but maybe being vulnerable to a certain extent is is not going to be helpful to him in the ring and it's it's about kind of in a way sort of reclaiming a certain lost masculinity. I think that's true, but I think it's also really key that what's holding him back, you know, when he has that that shouted therapy session on the beach with Adrian, what's holding him back is being afraid. And yeah. what gets him past that in part is being able to talk about being afraid, being able to admit it and express it and work on moving by it. And, you know, all of that is is therapy speak. All of that is sort of part of a, a mental health journey. He needs to get past his fear 
but there's never a point in the movie where where we realize that his real problem was opening up to his wife and admitting right. his feelings. It's the opposite. The problem was he wasn't talking about it enough, right? He had to have that moment on the beach with Adrian where he admits and, you know, like it really is like a therapy session. He has to let all this stuff out that he's afraid that he he's afraid of losing what he's got. And and her response is, well, so what? Who cares? Like, who cares about losing? If you lose the right way, it doesn't matter. Like, so to what Scott is saying about, well, he has to sort of he has to get back the eye of the tiger, as as a great songsmith might have said. <laughs> that is, you know, like that is true in the ring, but it's but it's not quite true out of the ring, right? Like it's not like he needs to shut himself off from his emotions. It's almost like he needs to get more in touch with his emotions and let them, uh, you know, sort of like let him use them in some way in the ring, you know. So. And and yes, when he was, uh, you know, that guy on the streets in the first Rocky, he had the eye of the the tiger, as again, someone might write in a song. But he was also like he's he the Rocky character was always, uh, you know, like a big softy outside of the ring. That's part of what makes him so popular and enduring is romancing Adrian in the original movie when she is so shy and he's so gentle with her and sweet with her and takes her on these dates where he's just talking and talking and talking and she's not saying anything because she's so shy that's sort of always been part of a part of his character so yeah i i do i do sort of love that about i mean uh, i I get a little choked up honestly during the the beach scene as hokey as it can be like I, i think it's a really lovely scene between those characters and actually one of the things i've always sort of liked less about rocky four is that in that scene, they have almost the exact same argument. But in that movie, Adrian tells him not to fight and says she's the one who's saying we can't lose what we've had. And I've always liked this version of Adrian better because she's it's like the like she's his partner. You know, it feels much more like this is a brave person who's like willing to, you know, encourage her husband to do this thing. Whereas in the in Rocky Four, she's kind of like, no, don't do it. I don't. But then she says, win. Remember that when she's like really still on the, in the bed or whatever, she's like. I got what it's like. That's Rocky about her. too, Scott. Come on, damn! I thought I that am, was I'm four. honestly so glad that Matt knows these films well enough I, to glad, to school us and keep us straight on those elements. Because I just saw Rocky Four and it felt like that was uh, anyway. I'm thinking Matt actually of First Blood Part Two in the speech at the end, which I absolutely hate. I hate that speech so much. It, it, it is clearly something that Stallone added added on, but it relates to this in the sense that one, these two movies came pretty close together. And two, it was a moment where this character, John Rambo, who is just an absolute, you know, killing machine in that film, gets emotional and and, and, and says something that, that is, you know, representing himself and, of course, the veteran experience. And it's just, it's just again, I hate the speech, but but it is revealing and extremely revealing of, of Stallone and his approach to macho characters and his willingness to add this element of just high emotion into a into genres into the types of movies that don't usually allow them yeah but on the other hand i i think tasha like when tasha's describing like these macho action men of the 80s like apart from that scene you know like the rambo of first blood part two really reminds me of what she's describing there i mean in that movie other than that big speech at the end if i'm remembering it correctly like you know, he has like a woman that he becomes involved with in that movie. And then she spoiler alert, she is killed. And like the way he expresses this is not by crying or 
uh, doing, you know, give, giving a speech there. He like turns her dress into like a headband. Like that's the way mm-hmm. that man expresses <laughs> his emotions and then kills 300 people like that. It's a very different and, and never making a joke, never smiling, never being sweet. Like it is fascinating that that, you know, Stallone's two heroes, while visually looking so similar, especially by this point where he's just a giant bundle of muscles, like personality wise, they are so uh, different. And it, and again, to sort of Tasha's point, I've always thought it was odd that, you know, Stallone had this character, Rocky, who was so beloved and was so in touch with these feelings and was expressive of them. And then outside of the Rocky movies, Stallone so rarely made movies like that. Like a lot, the much more his heroes were much more in the Rambo mode, you know, like over and over again where they didn't talk about that stuff. And they cracked less jokes or they were less hokey or less prone to have a a son they could play with and be kind to. I always thought that was odd. Like he almost didn't fully understand his own appeal in some way. Well, I have to wonder. I mean, I have not sat down and, and made a study of the films that he's been in. But like he was famously very deeply involved with the Rocky series in terms of writing, directing, producing a creative consultant, like putting his two cents in a lot with the Creed movies. I wonder if it's just a a case of like other people writing for Stallone were writing in the mode of the time and didn't get that. It's less him not getting his own appeal and less him writing from where he was coming from as a person and uh, a personality and, you know, other people writing in the mode of Arnold Schwarzenegger is allowed to make exactly four jokes uh, per movie. They all have to be after kills and he's never allowed to smile during any of them. You know, that's it's just a very different mode. Or that your theory falls apart is mostly Stallone mostly wrote his movies or or was a writer on his movies. He, I have to imagine even one where he's not credited, he's getting a lot of input. He loved to do a script polish, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, who's going to say no at that point in his career too, you know? Right. Which is usually, I, I think, often worked out. Like, I, I do have a lot of respect for him as a writer, although... The films that kind of follow this huge burst of success are not necessarily his most beloved or acclaimed films. Like I've, I've never seen Over the Top. I can't really speak to the quality of Over the Top, but what? it is, strikes me as perhaps not as good. Uh, as what does Rocky it strike film? you as? What does it strike you as? Phipps? Not as good as Rocky. Uh, you know, uh, how how dare you? <laughs> oh I mean, then God. maybe he just uh, didn't understand the the appeal of Rocky's humanity, or maybe he did and he wanted to to limit that to one thing, or you know, maybe it was he was working on polishing other stuff on the right. those scripts. As I say, I've never made a study of like which which of his movies. Which movies that he's in, uh, he got script credit, which he didn't. But uh, yeah, and maybe it's just that he thinks of these as as more autobiographical and he put more of himself, more of his his real personality into them. I, I don't know. I mean, I, ironically, Over the Top is a case where he plays someone who is a little more emotional. He has a son mm-hmm. and uh, he loves him and he just happens to also love arm wrestling and driving a truck. And uh, perhaps that movie's incredible crappiness made him think, well, maybe I should not do that outside of Rocky. Perhaps. I don't know. I, it's an interesting thing to think about because he, he did occasionally dabble in these other, you know, paint in these sorts of similar areas. And it, I guess it's true that it didn't often work out outside of Rocky. People loved Rocky 
And maybe for some, maybe it's, maybe it is that love of the character and that maybe the audience didn't want to see him doing these other things. I can't imagine why anyone wouldn't want to see Sylvester Stallone arm wrestle for the custody of his son. <laughs> but, you know, the audiences didn't show up for that one. For me, I wish that Copland had been more of a hit because I really think he's great in that movie. And it he is, is a really surprisingly uh, rich in that film, just nuanced in a way that I, I I remember that movie just coming as a humongous surprise to me because I did not realize he had that level of nuance as an actor. And not being the Stallone scholar that, that our special guest is, I haven't seen everything he's done between Copland and, and Creed. But but like to me, like that's another place. Creed is another movie where he lets himself be you know, be really quiet and, and vulnerable. Like that's one of my favorite performances of his. Is there's a line reading in that where he's talking, he's at Adrian's grave, which I think kind of gets overdone by making it part of Creed 2 as well. But like, I think it's that, that scene or some other scene where he just kind of casually refers to death as the undefeated champion. And I'm I'm never going to forget that line. And it's, partly it's a good line, but just his delivery of it is, is fantastic as well. When he, I mean, you know, he gets a lot of crap and sometimes certainly so, but when he could, he's very good. There's just, there's a humility that stretches through a lot of his best characters that, that he puts into his work. And I don't know if that's something he found for himself in the writing or that he just naturally does in his performances. But it was something that was lacking from, again, a lot of the action men of the era who, you know, feel kind of pump, like pumped up on ego and invulnerability, like a need to project invulnerability in fights. But I don't know. I, I think of, of Rocky Three and I think of the beach argument. I think of that moment with him in, in bed with Adrian singing to her. And just how how soft boy, like how how modern soft boy all of that is, how sweet and and kind and just really unlikely for a movie that's that's primarily about a guy losing the capacity to beat the crap out of people and then regaining the capacity to beat the <laughs> crap out of people. Now you have me wondering whether whether like, you know, right wing podcasters would get mad at, <laughs> at this movie now. It's just like, wait, he's too soft. He's not a type A. So let me ask you this question. We, we, we've focused quite a bit, of course, on Stallone and Rocky. And of course, we know very clearly why Rocky is motivated to sort of pick himself up for this rematch against Clubber Lang. But what are Apollo's motives for training him? And what, what do you make of the favor that he wants Rocky to do for him at the end? What's, what's his deal? We, my husband and I ended up talking that one out after we watched this movie. I mean, my read on it is that we we see exactly what Apollo's motives are on screen. He tries to treat Mr. T like an equal and Mr. T treats him like I'm calling him Mr. T instead of Clubber Lang. He's just so very, very Mr. T in, in this role. He tries to treat Clubber as an equal and as a person. And Clubber just immediately disses him, uh, dismisses him, uh, you know, chews him out. And you see on on his face in that moment, the feeling of being rejected and kind of disgusted, I, I think, in a way, offended at what his sport has come to. And it just seems to me like he knows that Rocky beat him. So he doesn't necessarily think he could take on Clubber, but he thinks that Rocky could. And he he makes that decision that like his hopes of seeing this arrogant upstart get the beat down that he feels he deserves rest more with Rocky than with his uh, his own abilities. But at the same time, like once it's over and done with, I think he just he he wants to know 
whether he could take him. He doesn't necessarily want it to happen in front of an audience. He doesn't need to be humiliated a second time or put down a second time. He has that curiosity within him, but he knows he's not hungry anymore either. Like he he knows he doesn't necessarily have have either what it takes to be clubber or what it takes to step up in front of a huge audience and say, I'm, I'm going to take Rocky down this time. Apollo is such an interesting character too, because the first two films establish him as a as a, sh- a very canny showman, as someone who's really good at manipulating the press and manipulating the the narrative of the fight. And I think you know you can read that scene, kind of taking off what you're saying, Tasha. Like you know, as him like thinking he recognizes a kindred spirit at Clubber Lang, and realizing this guy has no kayfabe. This guy is just exactly <laughs> what he looks like, you know. I mean, that's a pretty scary thing. I watching this movie, I was. Tr- Trying to put myself in the shoes of someone seeing this in 1982, you know, seeing Mr. T for the first time. Like, what a, what a bizarre and charismatic and 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 scary persona that this is. If you if you have known, I mean, you know, obviously by the time I came to Mr. Mr. T a few years later, it's like you know, this is the guy from like Different Strokes and the A Team. He's like lovable, but it's like you know, what a, what a, what an amazing debut for this. Uh, um, this character. I mean, I think of Mr. T as a character, even though he, he is Clubber Lang. He's a Razzie nominee for this. Can you believe that? Oh, that's insane. Screw the Razzies. They're terrible. I mean, I, I mean, they, they, that's a, it's a, what, oh, what, what Mr. T to do with that performance? Like, what does he not give you? It was just a that big kn- fat target and whatever. I, I hate that. Yeah. That's like, I think it's a good, I think it's a good performance. Razzies, I think I, if you're listening to this podcast, shut, shut down. We're, you're, you're done. We, we don't need you anymore. There is something that I do want him to do in this movie, and that is slow down. He he delivers all of his lines like he's in a race. And it it's not the force of conviction, which he has. It's not the force of emphasis, which he has. It's the force of maybe feeling a little nervous in his first role. Just like mm-hmm. everything he says is is super sped up. No spaces in between it, no pauses to let anything sink in, not even necessarily a pause to see the person in front of him and personalize the insult that he's about to throw at them. He's just he's he's nervy in this uh, constantly always on kind of way. And it certainly works in terms of setting up a character that needs to be taken down. But, you know, I think that there's a real important humanity to him here that the movie respects and and represents and acknowledges in terms of framing him as the new Rocky, you know, the new hungry, uh, un- unbeloved underdog who needs to prove himself, especially in that montage that's just, here's the one man training and here's the other man enjoying his cushy luxury life. The film sets him up as just potentially another Rocky. And by giving this performance that's just like all like nervous, fast barking, I just I don't think we get to see enough of the person who's actually there. And, you know, Mr. T off off screen gave us a ton of that person. As as Keith is saying, like, it seemed like it was just a couple of years after this movie, we we found out that he was super into kids and literacy programs and really just authentically wanted to make the world a better place in every way possible. You know, but here as, as an unknown entity, we don't get any of that humanity because he's going through his, all of his lines like this. Hmm. Well, and he, he doesn't really have any life that we see outside of boxing you know he has that line about like i i live alone i train alone i'm gonna win the championship alone and uh 
the juxtaposition of him and, and Rocky and everything you're saying is definitely there, that he is the new hungry uh, challenger. But the difference is that, like, you know, so much of the original Rocky is about Rocky's life outside of the ring. You know, the I don't think the fight with Apollo even gets set up for the first hour of that movie. Like, it's just him, like, working for a loan shark and talking to Adrian and, you know, meeting Mickey and all that sort of stuff. Like, there's a lot more to him that we don't ever really get to see with Clubber Lang. And I think it could have been interesting, I suppose. It's a very different movie. It might be a, a movie more like the other movie we're going to talk about eventually as part of this uh, series here. But the Clubber is really just like, you know, when you're describing how he speaks so fast, and he really does. It's something I was noticing as well, watching it again this time. It's just like, he's just like pure rage, just pure testosterone and anger and intensity. And like, that's all, that's really all that we see him do in this movie in terms of apollo you know i think everything you guys said was right on the money the one thing that really struck me watching it and it's maybe because i'm getting to be a very old man now myself was just like the encroaching mortality as a as a theme of this movie which would become more and more prevalent as the rocky franchise went on but just the idea you know at the end when you know scott asked about the favor and one of the lines in that scene that I always think about in that final where it's now just Apollo and Rocky and they're going to figure out who's the best now away from everybody is when Apollo says, you know, it's just too bad we have to get old. And Rocky's response is just keep punching Apollo, which is the ultimate Rocky response, because all Rocky cares about is endurance. Rocky never cares really about winning all that much, even in the first movie. It was he knew he was going to lose in the first movie. He just wanted to endure and to prove he could hang. And so that's the ultimate Rocky response is just keep punching. But just the idea that these guys are old, like Stallone is 32 in this movie. Carl Weathers is like 30, maybe not even 30 when they filmed it. And I'm just thinking, and they're like cut from marble. They're the, they have the most incredible physiques. They're always like glistening in the sun, like gods. And it's like, guys, <laughs> If you're old, what does that mean for the rest of us? Oh my goodness! Like, just bring on the uh, the middle age, the midlife crisis, or something. It's like if there's something that's always bugged me about this movie, it's that like they're you know, Rocky is washed up. He's gone soft. You know, to the to, to what Tasha was saying earlier about he's like a soft boy and like yes, emotionally, but like physically, he's just absurdly jacked and i've always thought the movie would make more sense if like in the beginning of the movie he was looking a little like he's not working out like he should you know like there's that whole sequence where he's training and he's not taking it seriously and then they cut to him without a shirt on and you could grate cheese on his stomach it's just like <laughs> i'm not buying the idea that this guy is not working out 45 hours a day it's not plausible it's like and that's the other aspect not to bring it back to stallone but like there is this I don't know, this tension in a lot of his movies of like, they would be better if he was willing to look a little less, you know, perfect, including in this movie. Like in the first Rocky, he certainly doesn't look like this. And that was part of his charm. He had an everyman's appeal. And part of this movie is that he is not an everyman. He is a celebrity. He's the world famous boxer. But the storyline is he's gone soft. He needs to get back the eye of the tiger I mean, he, maybe he doesn't have the eye of the tiger, but he's got the physique of a, of an actual like tiger. He could he could maul a tiger with that body. 
he certainly has the thighs of a tiger. There's a shot in the middle of the the beach running sequence, which, by the way, you want to talk about egoless. Egoless is allowing yourself to be filmed in close up in slow motion running. The facial expressions we get on uh, less less Carl here and more uh, Stallone, but especially Stallone, where his cheeks and jowls are just sort of flapping in the breeze. And we're getting it all in super slow motion, so we have time to appreciate it. Uh, it's like watching a basset hound run. It's, oh, it, it's not pretty. It's not, it's not handsome. It's real, you know, and gritty, but it's also a little bit funny. Uh, oh but all that said, oh my God, you, you mentioned them uh, glistening in the sun. This is a movie that is enamored of male sweat. Like few films I, I have ever seen before or since. There is just a degree to which and, uh, you know, you, you definitely get close ups of, of sweat like flying through the air when somebody gets punched hard. But also just they must have been dumping buckets of water over them uh, during those those shoots in terms of just how like wet and oily their bodies are. There is that shot where they're, where they're running on the beach where it's like you know, long shot of them running, close-ups of their faces, long shot of them running. And then in the middle of it, there's just, here's a huge close-up of Sylvester Stallone's thighs working. And now we're going to cut over to Carl's thighs also working. And I'm like, I don't remember seeing the female gaze much in 80s films, much less 80s sports films. But this shot is like, for the ladies and the gay boys out there, it's just a close-up of groins and thighs at work. I mean, it makes me laugh, but it's also just a little charming in terms of feeling different from the model of the time. It's kind of the Top Gun uh, volleyball scene early on. Hey, just a quick aside uh, in researching this. You know, you know who is old? Cinematographer Bill Butler, uh, who who shot this film and other Rocky sequels, who will be 102 years old uh, in April. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I was that? working until 2009. And is he a big leg man? Is he a is it is he a big old five fan? What does he think of the big meaty men and their 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 meat? <laughs> uh, I think they're I think sweaty, cutest, sweaty sure. Wow. Um. Uh, so <laughs> this will this will be a dramatic uh, shift in subjects, but I, I want to address it anyway because I'm interested in 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 your thoughts about sort of the right racial dynamic in this movie because I think if you you know, a, a cynical person, a, a glass half empty type might describe Rocky as being a, a film about a working class white uh, a guy who who humbles a, an arrogant uh, black man. But, you know, I mean, obviously that relationship evolved over time, uh, but there are also some some elements here where, where, where Apollo's bringing Rocky back to his neighborhood and his people and what, you know, what, what does all that mean? You know, were there elements of this film that kind of made you cringe a little, or were there par parts of it that's that you know conversely you know seemed enlightened? Well, I remember Matt. Matt could probably clarify this more, but I remember the first Rocky taking some great pains to establish it as not that, while also kind of exploring the racial dynamic uh, of that matchup. If I'm not mistaken, right, Matt? Yeah, I think I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Uh, this is interesting. Like you do get it, kind of like well, that opening opening montage sequence. Until you get a white boxer, it almost feels like Clubber's getting mad watching 
Rocky punch out one black guy after another, and that's what's motivating him. <laughs> well, the old, the actual opening montage is basically previously on Rocky. Well, yeah, after, after that, though, that first, yeah, like, here's, here's Rocky fighting, yeah, fighting yeah, but, yeah, yeah. including what, what what was that, Big Ball Yank? Big Yank Ball. Big Yank Ball, right. I, I, I too, want to know more, Matt. Yes. We all this do. is something I would really, really be interested in hearing from uh, uh, listeners of color on, because I, I thought about that a lot during this movie. It feels like there isn't any really overt, uh, you know, racial racial uh, content in the script per se, apart from the moment where Clubber Lang is, is coming to the ring and somebody jumps out in front of him and tells him to go back to where he came from. And the the words aren't go back to Africa, but they might as well be like it. That's the subtext there. I think that's the sound of it, regardless of, of how many black men are involved in boxing. When you use that phrase, it's a dog whistle. You know, it's it's a very it has a very specific meaning. And in the same sort of way, when you have somebody with as little narrative background as Clubber has here, who is as angry as he is. I cannot help but read that as he's angry because he's a black man in America and he's he's had to live that way as a black man in America. So the film sets this up as one black man helping a white man defeat another black man. And you certainly could if you came to it with the specific intention of reading it this way or or maybe this is just the way some people are going to interpret it. You could certainly see, uh, you know, this here's this white blue collar boy who fought his way up as a, an underdog and then got civilized and, and rich and soft and is driving around in a Maserati. And here's a black man who has kind of gone the same route, who has become this like, you know, he's he's climbed the ladder and he's he's well off and also living this like white collar rich existence. And then when he sees this like angry, poor young black man, he wants to shut him down so he can't climb the, the ladder as well. Like it's it could be read as a pretty classic avoiding helping out the people that come up after you if you want to read it that way. I don't feel that intention in the movie. And I, I feel like Apollo being there is sort of meant to help uh, get us past the racial dynamic of it being about a white guy beating a black guy. But I feel like the movie does not doesn't demonize Clubber. Like he is, as I say, he kind of gets the hero cut uh, for the first half of the movie, where it feels like he's hungry for a reason. And you know, the fact that Rocky has to to come back is more about him defeating his own inner demons and his own fear than about you know defeating a black guy or a guy who's symbolic of black guys. But at the same time. The anger that that Clubber brings to all of this, and just the the feeling of pride in himself, does have some elements of like the Black Pride movement of the time. And seeing him get shut down does feel symbolic. I, I feel like this is a movie that, depending on your politics, you could choose to see in in a variety of ways. So I'm just I would be very curious to know. You know, we've had people write in before and say, you just don't have the perspective on this. I'd love to hear from people who feel that they do have the perspective on it and how they personally take the read. I would also be interested to hear, and I don't think I've ever read anything about this subject from Stallone. I would really be interested in hearing his thoughts about this. 
Would you though? No, I, I mean, <laughs> he, he, a lot of politics is a, a tr- tricky subject, though. But it, I mean, he wrote this and Frank's he directed it. I would love to know what, like, was this in his mind? I mean, my personal opinion is it's not something he thought about a lot. I think it's sort of like incidental to what he was thinking about, which was a lot of stuff about class, which is always a huge part of Rocky and boxing stories in general. And the sort of, you know, like more and more as these movies go on, there's this real, this real focus on, you know, uh, American imagery and the idea that Rocky pulled himself up from nothing and uh, became this, you know, famous, successful boxer. And to go along with all that, you have the fact that in the first movie, you know, Apollo wore the red, white and blue boxing trunks you know he's literally draped in the in the american flag and if you go back and watch the original movie like in the original fight the fight at the end of the movie there's a lot of shots with the american flag sort of like and the biggest american flag that's ever existed like hanging in the background which is an image you know you could read a a hundred different ways in this context but it's sort of very interesting i think to uh explore i don't you know in this context and then of course in this movie when rocky sort of proves himself to apollo what does he do he gives him his red white and blue uh trunks which he then wears you know throughout basically they become his trademark even though they were apollo's first you know to and then in the creed movies adonis creed wears them it's become sort of like the uh the de facto costume that the protagonist of these movies has to wear, which I think is is very interesting. The way that those like symbolic trunks get passed from one character to another when you earn them or when you're trying to prove something or make a statement through them, I think is all very, very interesting. You could almost do a whole podcast just about the trunks, really. Just as long as they get washed in between uses, yes. as very, very rashy. says. It's very rashy if you don't wash the trunks. Yeah. Yeah, that, that fabric, that very, very shiny fabric looks extremely itchy, especially after, you know, round two when you're just coated in sweat. <laughs> uh, yes. Okay. Well, a couple of things just to, to finish up, I guess, a little bit on some of the racial dynamics of the of the film. I have, uh, watching a lot of the films of the 80s now, I do find I have a particular sensitivity toward depictions of black neighborhoods. Because I feel like I feel like they informed young young me and young a lot of people about fear and about being terrified of these places and terrified of the people who live in them, you know. And I and I think the film kind of gets away with it a little bit through Polly because Polly is the one who gets to be the the jerk, the idiot, the 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 unenlightened guy. I mean, we might like Pop Polly, you know, but we, he's gonna be. Do we like him all? Good lord! I no, we don't. We hate Polly. Well, I mean, why would we the, tol- God's earth would we like Polly? Well, I mean, we talk. Tol- it's like Rocky. He's like he's like okay. He's annoyed by Polly, but but Polly's his buddy. Um, he's unenlightened. He's, he's he, and anyway, Polly is, anyway. Polly is somebody he feels indebted to because he they came up together, and he he knows that you know he he doesn't want to be that guy who's who's kicking the ladder out. But Polly is also like a a jealous, weaselly, resentful, selfish, drunken little bastard 
who ultimately doesn't can't do anything for himself uh, except, you know, beg for a job. It actually, given how much space he gets at the beginning of this movie to just be like a slob and a whiner and a jerk, it really kind of surprises me that 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 plot line kind of doesn't go anywhere. He, he says, can I have a job? Rocky says, all you had to do is ask. And then he quietly and competently does his job, apart from whining about the black neighborhood and occasionally whining about other things. He he doesn't ever fall down on the job. He's he's always there, even if he's kind of saying like, "Look, I'm I'm not I'm not good enough to replace Burgess Mer- Meredith in this movie." Well, he's good uh, enough to get a, ro- a robot. He gets a robot in the, in the next movie. He's loyal. <laughs> Rocky's not Rocky's not going to give a robot to somebody he doesn't care about. I was. It's funny. I, not to, I, not to take us further off track here, but I was watching this movie. I was thinking. Is there a character in movies who appears in more films as an ostensible, like, protagonist or friend of the protagonist, a good, you know, like a guy we're supposed to theoretically like, as Scott was saying, who is more, like, loathsome and annoying and has fewer redeeming qualities than Pauly, who appeared in, like, all five of the movies, does nothing but bother Rocky, is annoying, he's a troublemaker, he's a drunk, everything we were saying, it's like, and they never like attempted to make him a more nuanced or have him, you know, like clean up his act. He's just this is all he does. And he does it over and over. And it's like, is there another character who's more like loath just consistently unrepentantly loathsome in a franchise than Polly and Rocky? <laughs> there's nothing likable about him, right? Oh my God. This just makes me wonder if there's an autobiographical element there too. You know, if Stallone oh also has people okay. in his life. You know, think about it. We're talking about all the elements he he brought in from his life. Like, what if what if they're just people in his uh, in his life that were around when he was young that he feels like he can't graciously ditch, but they're just pains in his butt. I mean, I, I do think that's the generous reading for why that character sticks around. It's like e- every, you know, person of Rocky stature would have a Paulie kind of asking him for a job and looking for money. Like, it makes sense. And and resenting him the entire time. In my continuing updates on, on the old of the Rocky uh, uh, series, Paulie is no longer with us in the fictional universe, but Berg Young still still is. He is now yes. uh, 82 years old, which I w- actually would have guessed older. <laughs> yeah. He looks up. Close to eighty-two in this movie. He looks like some hard-lived drawing. He would have. He would have been in his four. He would have been like forty. What do you think this movie? Yeah, he's like yeah. Pivoting right, back to the racial dynamics, like what Scott was saying yes, specifically let's, let's about leave this subject. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking well, well, just pivoting back to specifically what Scott was saying about uh, black neighborhoods. Like I, I had already forgotten like Polly's freaking out over. Uh, how low rent everything feels in that neighborhood. What struck me much more so was the moment where they all walk into the the gym together. And it's just immediately clear that Rocky, Adrian, and Polly are out of place there. You know, that they're they're white people in a black neighborhood in an era when with even less integration than we have now. And they're uncomfortable and they don't know where they stand. But pretty much once Apollo, you know, introduces Rocky and brings him over, everybody's friendly and like all of those hostile eye of the tiger faces that he kind of points out is like look all of these people are hungry and they're what you used to be 
like that isn't presented as it would have been in so many other movies at the time as like a racial threat or a, a threat of violence. There's a, a weird close up on Talia Shire at one point as she's looking around at all of these black men where she kind of does a almost a cartoon, you know, pull at your collar and gulp kind of thing, <laughs> like where she's just clearly uncomfortable in a way that uh, speaks to her vulnerability as as a white woman but also her perceived vulnerability as a white woman in a room full of uh like young black men and the scene almost immediately subverts that you know there's a feeling of maybe they resent him because he's white or maybe they resent him because he's rich and famous and slumming it in their gym or maybe they just resent him because you know he's he's a winner and he has what they're trying to get like everybody there as a boxer kind of sizes him up as competition of a sort but at the point where apollo kind of calls him over and says like hey he, here's the champ you want to talk to him suddenly people are smiling and and talking to him and it again just feels like a very humanizing moment for like this group of of young black fighters in an era that didn't often do much to humanize young black men in movies it almost feels like it's subverting that uh you know black neighborhoods are scary idea that you were talking about scott in especially in terms of movies it's just kind of like oh hey no but we're all we're all people here and we all kind of want the same thing and we're we're all working hard for sports reasons like not because where whatever it is that, that white America imagines us to be when they go see movies uh, that have scenes like this in, in black neighborhoods. It it actually seemed, I don't know, reaffirming in a way, uh, certainly calming in a way that 80s movies didn't very often go in terms of racial dynamics. It's the opposite of the scene in National Lampoon's Vacation where they uh, uh, end up in the wrong neighborhood. Um, yeah. <laughs> and have their uh, hubcaps stolen. Um, yeah, the, the, I would, I think, I think that's right, Tasha, because I think that, you know, when they can go, go into that gym, you could leave it at them being glared at and, and then, and being referred to as, you know, tigers. It's like, okay, these are animals basically and and what the film does immediately kind of undercut that assumption about them and, and is a lot sort of warmer than you expect. And, it, you know, um, yeah, I think it's an interesting it's an interesting movie, and I think that I think that you know one of the benefits of of Rocky just as a franchise is being able to develop uh, that relationship between Rocky and Apollo over the course of three films and a little bit of <laughs> the fourth. And uh, yeah, it, it um, it's uh, I, I think to the positive. But I was kind of I was certainly curious to hear uh, thoughts on that. We have lots of other thoughts on R Rocky Three that we are going to share uh, later when we bring in uh, Creed 3, but we'll save that for that. Uh, in the meantime, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this discussion and anything else in the world of film. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share any responses with us and other listeners, or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. We'll be back in a minute with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback, but before we get to it, we want to shout out Film Spotting, the Next Picture Show's Mothership podcast hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. Like us, Adam and Josh love to dig into classic films, you know, like Rocky III, and, <laughs> and they've used uh, a recent episode to reflect on the 50th anniversaries of Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets 
and Terrence Malick's Badlands. Uh, so be sure to check that out. As for our podcast, uh, we have uh, a query related to Children of Men. There was a lot of discussion about the long takes in that, and uh, and it, it's very simple. This is from Patrick in, uh, in, in Durham, North uh, Carolina. Uh, he asks us uh, simply, are there any long takes you particularly dislike? So, because we got to talk about the ones we've talked about, the ones we liked. What, what, what are the times when you would just like, come on, cut for God's sakes? Why do we, why am I, why am I watching this take? You, anybody got a good answer to this one? I, I have a couple. I'm not going to say that I was thinking, uh, oh, come on, cut already uh, during this this particular one. But I'll give you an example from a recent movie. And that is the long take uh, with the flying camera in at the end of Damien Chazelle's Babylon. So you have a character in a movie theater having an experience and then the camera just goes like flying through the theater to like look at all sorts of things. And it it does a little backflip and it ends up uh, back up on the balcony with him. And it's a move uh, and a shot expressly kind of stolen from from Gaspar Noe's Irreversible, which, by the way, I would also say the the opening shot of that with the camera flipping over and over and over, that was a, a shot. That was a long shot where I was saying, oh, please just cut. Please, please, please Ooh. just cut. And it's in that case, it's mostly it was it had become an endurance thing uh, rather than a, a technical or aesthetic issue on my part. I'm not saying that. Uh, irreversible shot is a a bad shot. I am saying it was grueling uh, to the senses, and I I wanted back well, out of it. The, what about the shot where it stabilizes Tasha? That's a lot. That's a lot worse, isn't it? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of long shots in that movie, and there many of <laughs> them are very very grueling and very very yeah. impressive. But and there wasn't yes. there wasn't a lot of time where I was thinking, uh, please cut already. Apart from that that opening camera flipping one, but sure. the shot in Babylon. To me, it just felt show-offy in a way that didn't serve the story or or what was going on in there. I thought that the idea of somebody in a theater having a very different experience from everybody else is a really interesting one and and something that I like to see explored in cinema, which I you know, if I had a dollar for every movie that I've seen that has, it, the Sullivan's travel shots of like, here's everybody having the same experience in a theater. That's something you see all the time. The idea of you're alone in the dark with your feelings in this movie and you're experiencing something different from everybody else. I think that's a really cool thing to explore. And by leaving his character and going wandering through this theater and showing off all the different places he could get the camera, Chazelle just kind of leaves behind the human emotions of the moment and turns it into a, a kind of reverse set piece that to me really under undermined the scene and the sequence and the emotions there. So there's a long take that I did not care for at all. Not because I thought like as an editor, there should be more cuts, but because I, I thought as a viewer, I wasn't where I wanted to be at all in that scene. And I didn't care for where it was taking me and, and how showily it was doing it. Interesting. What do you think, Matt? If it's a real long take, an actual long take, I generally always like it, as you asked me this before and I was trying to think. The thing that bugs me and I dislike is the, well, we're going to fake it by, you know, we hit a camera cut here, we put, you know, like, so like movies, especially that we've gotten a few of them more recently where it's like, well, the whole movie is going to be a long take. 
Uh, but we've, you know, we, we've conveniently placed things in the foreground every 20 minutes that we can kind of, you know, whip pan past like some of the back of someone's shirt or a wall or something. So like, you know, 1917, I don't know if maybe I was the only one who was like, at a certain point I was kind of rooting for a cut. Like, let's just cut. Let's stop. Why, why are we doing this? Do we, do we really, is this, is, is that all there is? I think, I don't know, maybe I'm just in, I'm getting to be an old fuddy duddy, but, uh, I'm I'm not too, I'm not as impressed if you're cheating it's cheating isn't it cheating you're cheating <laughs> I'm I'm with you I mean well Birdman is <laughs> Yeah well, Birdman definitely came to mind uh, you know here's the thing though this is something if I'm really thinking about this it's it really has to do with you know when you're doing something like that you're kind of just you're showing off a little bit right you're showing it just has to yeah. it has to do with who I it has to do with who I want to show who I like showing off and who I don't you know so 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 if so if if Brian De Palma is going to do this incredible single take opening to Snake Eyes I like that that's great it's Brian De Palma he's doing his thing uh but <laughs> but I you know if, if Alejandro Gonzalez and Iritu is going to do it in his movie it's just you know a self-indulgent horror um, so it really has to detract. The, it, one other example I was kind of thinking about, I mean, for one, you could say, uh, you know, a good long take would be something like Russian art. Cause that, you know, that was a, that was a, you know, digital video was happening. It was executed. This incredible, you know, film was all done in one take. That was remarkable. But I feel like some of the, some of the experiments that were happening at the time of just keeping the camera going, haven't held up as well. I, I th I'm thinking specifically of time code. Uh, the Figus film, uh, which I which I had um, praised at the time, and that that of course had uh, long takes within four different quadrants that were sort of interacting, and of course on a technical level it was pretty advanced, but it, I think overall as a as an experience uh, as a dramatic experience, um, I think I probably overrated it pretty pretty dramatically at the time, and it's one of the kind of one of those reviews I kind of want to you know reel in again. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna go ahead and you know, and of course, Figus's a lot of the Figus's work after that sort of sort of uh, bore out any you know suspicions you might have about about you know how good he was as an artist. But um, uh, that was one that came to mind as well. Scott, your whole uh, building it around do I like the filmmaker or not just reminds me so much of like the difference between uh, homage in a film and stealing is do <laughs> exactly. I like the do I like how it's done do I like the director yeah, yeah. I, I just feel like we need to there should be there's like a difference between showing off and kind of like trying to pull a fast one you're trying to trick the audience it's like you don't you don't, you don't want to be fooled yeah it's, you don't you don't want to cut thrown in there you need a, you need the, the real thing the, the real deal i don't know it just feels a little like like yeah you try to pull a fast one and like show your superior almost like sort of like a certain amount of like superiority over the audience in a way like i don't know there's there's something a little condescending about the fake long takes I, that's maybe that's what it is <laughs> Matt, you're you're not alone in in that. I just I want to say if if you feel alone, you should go read uh, uh, Matt Patches at uh, at Polygon. My boss wrote a piece that's basically exactly what you're saying. Uh, he 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 called it a stunt without a purpose. Uh, he really really disliked 1917. Uh, so the the two of you have something to talk about. Keith, what do you say to that? I largely like 1917 uh with with some uh, some of the caveats you mentioned but i think there is just sort of a new i don't you know i don't really um well versed enough on the technical end of things 
uh, to know how it's done, but there's like, you know, there's so many digital tricks now to, to fake it. And like, you know, I'm thinking, um, it's a show I like, um, I'm enjoying the second season, but watching the second season of, uh, Perry Mason, which has like this really long, um, you know, it's television, obviously, but it is a long cut. It is a long shot at the beginning that you can kind of see the digital scenes. The one that always comes to mind to me is there's this fight in the, in a church, in the Kingsman, the first Kingsman movie, I think. And, and it's just the same thing where it's like, okay, this is a long shot. You certainly are doing this. And I'm not really enjoying it. Also, I find that that, that particular scene, the violence in that is so grotesque uh, and, and sadistic. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, I, it is, it's like, I think it's maybe the absence of motivation or like you're just doing this to do it. There's not like a good artistic reason to do it. So that, that's when it takes me out. You, you know what movie has a great, long take in it the first creed boom brought it all back together you see <laughs> a segue wow professional uh yeah i'm okay i'm that was that was perfect matt and i'm sorry to ruin this by pulling us back out again but i i've got to know do you consider alfred hitchcock's rope like condescending and and showy and and boring and dumb like, do you do you hate that? The same same for the rest of you. Like, do you do you think that that movie is bad because he's playing with these long takes and because he can only make the takes so long because of the limits of, of you know, film cartridges at the time? So he keeps zooming into people's backs. Is that is that a, inherently a bad movie for you? Rope's good. It's not my favorite Hitchcock movie. And but it definitely does. It's definitely one where you can feel the experiment kind of overtaking the storytelling at times. But, but no, I mean, I, I like, I'm not going to disrope. Don't ropes, ropes good. I mean, I'll, I'll diss it a little bit. It's not definitely not one of my favorite uh, Hitchcock movies. I haven't seen it in a really long time. I, I, to me, it's like, I would like to see what Hitchcock could have done with a camera that didn't have to cut every 10 minutes. That that's the movie I would want to see that the, the, he really is butting up against the technical limitations there. And uh, it's still just like a movie in a in a room the whole time, regardless of the of the long takes, you know, like, I mean, is it a nice room? I, yeah, I guess it's a nice room. But I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a room. <laughs> just, rem- just remember my credo here when when, it, when it's a director we like, it's it's cool when they show off. <laughs> and when it's a director I, I don't you don't like it's bad. Uh, so we always appreciate uh, when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at Creed Three, a similarly themed but much more muted second sequel in Michael B. Jordan's spinoff franchise. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod. You want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, keep punching. Keep punching.